Welcome to the latest episode of the Greatest Science Fiction Film Tournament Podcasts. I'm your host, Blaine Dowler. And joining me again... I'm Alex Case. Alright, so this week we are talking about The Black Hole from 1979. A movie with fans, with detractors, and with some actual historical significance as well. Indeed. This is like one of the last... I would say it's the last science fiction films to be done within Disney and the old studio system style, as opposed to the sort of more modern way of filmmaking where you have a whole bunch of production companies and stuff working outside of the studio. So it's a very it is a very, very historically significant film. Also, I think it's one of the last movies to have a overture. Yeah, it was one of the last with an overture, one of the last big studio science fiction films, the first Disney movie with a PG rating. It has what was at the time the longest 100% CGI sequence. And that's the opening credits, which show the wireframe of a black hole, but that wireframe doesn't apply to the black hole that's actually in the film. Yeah. <laughs> so I will be talking about the physics behind what we're seeing Indeed. in this movie. So a quick rundown. When was the first time you saw this, Alex? I saw it on the Disney Channel when I was a kid. This was like back in like the mid-90s, like early to mid-90s. So, on the one hand, I wasn't really getting to see it in the proper aspect ratio or anything like that, but I did get, but I remember it left a big impression with me. Um, I hadn't seen 2001 A Space Odyssey or anything like that before that. My main exposure to science fiction film was like Star Trek and Star Wars. So, some of the bits early on in the movie, particularly when they're in zero gravity and they're kind of trying to replicate it with wire work really caught my interest. Like, hey, they are sort of trying to do some semi-hard stuff, science science there, even if, I mean, there's sound in space and pew-pew lasers and that later on and that sort of thing. Yeah, there are, they were trying in a lot of ways. My history with the movie goes back a little bit earlier than that. So the original theatrical release of this movie was on December 21st, 1979, which puts it two weeks to the date after Star Trek The Motion Picture first came out in theaters. Now, I saw this in theaters. I don't know if it was in the original release or when it was re-released in March of 1982. So, honestly, my memories of the time are a bit vague. I'm not sure if I remember sitting in the theater watching it when I was two and a half or four and a half. It's probably when I was four and a half, but I clearly remember watching Empire Strikes Back in theaters as well. And that was 1980 when I was coming up on three. So it is possible that it was the original run, but I suspect it was the second run. And I really enjoyed it. I got my parents to get me the read-along record when that came out, which made some significant changes, completely removing the two characters that were played by the biggest stars in the film, just because it was aimed at a younger audience and those two characters don't make it. So it's just, let's not deal with killing characters by not including the characters that die. Oh dear. Wow. Um, I remember listening to the cassette version of what I presume was the read-along record for Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and they did not make those changes. Captain Terrell dies. Um, Khan, naturally, dies. You can't kind of write your way around that one. No, the, the Black Hole read-along record might as well be a different movie. Oh dear. There are a number of changes that I remembered. Kind of confusing me as a kid, and I was thinking, well, because there was a, a pretty big time lapse between when I saw it in theaters and when I got the read-along record, I thought, maybe I didn't remember the movie right. And I listened to that read-along record dozens of times before I saw the movie again and saw the movie again. It's like, no, I was remembering the movie right. <laughs> they pulled a lot of stuff out. We'll do a, a quick plot synopsis so we can continue talking about it. 
we start off with the Palomino, which is a relatively small craft, at least in comparison to really the only other craft we're going to see. And it's manned by you know, five humans and a robot. When they're coming along, they're noticing that there's something wrong with their navigation, they're drifting, and they're trying to figure out why. And the robot Vincent says, oh, you know what? I think it's because of the largest black hole I've ever seen. And when they're detecting the black hole, they notice a ship that's parked, where ships should not be parked. It should be drawn in. And they identify it as the ship that has been missing for a while and was the ship that was assigned to a crew member's father. So there's the one female crew member. Her father was on the ship. So Captain agrees. Yeah, the ship is the USS Cygnus. Named for Cygnus X-1, the first star system that humans identified as the probable location of a black hole. The original script had a different name for it. I honestly don't remember which, but they did rewrite it to change it to Cygnus to make that connection. So the captain agrees to do a single pass. That's about all their ship can stand. They do a pass, and as they get close to the Cygnus, they realize that they're not dealing with any of the tidal gravitational effects that they would expect to be dealing with this close to the black hole. So they feel it beforehand, then it's like there's an eye of the storm or a little pocket of normal space around the Cygnus. And when they're trying to escape, they realize they can't. The gravity is too much for the ship and it actually sustains damage. They head back to the Cygnus, hoping to land there and execute repairs. When they land, they discover that, yeah, Dr. Reinhardt is still in charge, as they expected, but none of the other crew are there. He's claiming that they all left and he's surprised they didn't make it back. Instead, the entire thing is manned with a huge number of humanoid robots. And as this crew is exploring often on unguided and unofficial tours that they've taken themselves on and get chastised for, they start to see things that don't add up, and they know that Dr. Reinhardt is lying to them. And eventually they make friends with one of the robots on the ship, find out what's going on, and need to escape, hopefully with their lives. Things don't always go as planned, but I think we'll fill in the rest as we get to it and do it in a more sequential pattern here. But as far as the opening is concerned, I did like it. That's, as Alex already mentioned, that's where we see the wire work in simulating the anti-gravity. Now, for a movie with a $20 million budget in 1979 that includes guys like Maximilian Schell, Ernest Borgnine, and Anthony Perkins, as well as Roddy McDowell and Slim Pickens doing voice work, a fair chunk of that $20 million is probably going straight to the cast. Yeah. So there's not a lot of money left over for some of the fairly elaborate special effects that this movie would demand. So it's fairly well done. I mean, there's no question that they're on wires. You can see their clothes puckering where the wires are supporting them. You can see the bloody wires on the DVD release. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's not as well hidden as it would be these days. They didn't have the computer ability to edit them out. What we've got is, as I said, the longest computer-generated shot beforehand for the opening credits, which is a wireframe of a black hole. Yeah. Also, I'd say that the uh, opening credits as well probably, in my opinion, has the best cue or best theme of composer John Barry, who did the film's music, career. I'd actually say it's even better than his James Bond theme. It has a really strong sense of suspense and drama and sets a really kind of serious mood for the movie where it's, it says that it's an adventure movie, but it's a very dramatic adventure movie. It's, it's, it's a sort of tonally darker piece than, say, the Star Wars thing, which is other, which would have been at the time the other big uh, space adventure movie score. Yeah, it's certainly not as brassy as any of the John Williams. It is more in line with the kind of score that you hear from 2001: A Space Odyssey. And even though this came out in 1979, 
it's not really riding that Star Wars wave as much as other science fiction films were at the time. It wasn't trying to be... I mean, it's got some action sequences, to be sure, but a lot of it is pretty cerebral. We don't actually really see action until we're about 80 minutes into a 100-minute runtime. Yeah, we got a few little bits here and there before things all start going pear-shaped, but it's like a shooting gallery scene, and that's pretty much it until you know, everything, go- everything goes bad. Yeah, and even the shooting gallery... They're shooting, but not at each other. They're shooting at targets. It might as well be a tennis match Yeah. for as much as the story's concerned. What matters there is that Vincent, who's the robot that came with the Palomino and its crew, and Bob, who is the robot that they ally with on the Cygnus, you know, they show up sort of the star performer, who's actually named Star, <laughs> Yeah. on the Cygnus. And that's what it boils down to. And while they're doing it, it also shows that, yeah, these two are sharpshooters. So it helps explain at the end why they're blowing away some of these androids, even though these androids are about as precise as stormtroopers. Indeed. Unless they're shooting at the Java transport, then they are precise. But anyway. <laughs> uh. Now, generally speaking, a lot of it is fairly well done. As I said, the wireframe does show a black hole, but it's not the black hole we see. The wireframe in the opening credits is appropriate to what we call a stationary black hole. So if you've got a black hole with zero angular momentum, that's the kind of dent it makes in space. But when we're doing a wireframe, what we're really doing is taking a two-dimensional surface and stretching it in 3D. Whereas a black hole is actually, of course, a 3D object in terms of spatial dimensions plus time. So when we're seeing that wireframe, we're actually adjusting the dimensions that we're measuring it with. Most of the time we're used to measuring with XYZ or the Cartesian coordinates named after Rene Descartes who came up with them as a sick child watching a fly crawling across his bedroom window, or sorry, his bedroom ceiling. So yeah, Rene Descartes, the philosopher, invented our coordinate system when he was eight years old with the sore back. That's not the coordinate system that we use for these wireframes. This is more like the coordinate system that the Enterprise NCC 1701D uses for transportation. When they're setting courses in the Enterprise, They'll say a number, mark, and then another number. Sometimes it sounds like a list, but they're actually giving two numbers between 0 and 359. They give them one digit at a time. So if they say course 241 mark 17, what they're saying is we are inside a sphere, kind of like being at the center of the Earth and giving your coordinates in terms of latitude and longitude. So the front of the Enterprise is always 0. When they say that 241, that's like they're saying 241 degrees around that circle, or 119 degrees the other way, Mark 17 means 17 degrees up or down from that point, so it gives an orientation. The third coordinate then they need is distance from the center point, or the radial dimension. When you've got a wireframe like we have in the opening credits, the radial dimension is the only one that is taken into account. We don't have any angular dimensions in there. We don't have those two numbers separated by mark. It's just distance from center. So that means you have a black hole in your model that looks exactly the same from all directions, and that only happens if it's not spinning. The black hole that we see in this movie is very clearly spinning. We see that effect every single time we see it on screen. So as neat and as record-breaking and the landmark technology as that opening sequence was, the black hole we see in that opening sequence is not the black hole in the movie. Yeah, the black hole in the movie um, from the making of documentary basically is made using a paint tank. Uh, the way these work is, then they don't do them much anymore, is you take a big giant tank of water, you put a whole bunch of paint in it, Ideally, like luminescent paint, then you shine a light through it. This is for this is for example how they did the nebula, Matara Nebula in Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan. Um, but the way they do here to change things up is they then put a agitator at the bottom to spin it to make the whirlpool effect. 
Um, and they basically got one day of shooting out of it before the tank broke and left paint and water about, like, ankle deep or knee deep on the soundstage. And they just didn't have the money to build the new one, so... That was about one day's worth of shooting to get all the footage for the movie, and for what it's worth, it turned out fairly well. It did. I've got concerns with the colors. Yeah. But doing it as a rotating black hole is absolutely the way to go. Not just because we haven't developed any model where you can get a non-rotating black hole to naturally occur in space. Right. If you look at every mechanism we have for creating a black hole, they come from stars. Stars typically have inherent angular momentum. That's conserved. So if the star is spinning, so is the black hole, and the black hole will be spinning faster, just like an ice skater spins faster when he or she pulls their arms in versus when their arms are out. When the star collapses into a smaller body, it's going to rotate faster to maintain that angular momentum. So it is going to rotate, and that's necessary for films, not just if they want to make it more realistic, but also to make the thing bloody visible. Mm -hmm. If it doesn't rotate... The only way that you're going to notice it's there is if it eclipses a star in the background and swallows the light coming in from that star. So it's literally an area that's just blocking your view. Very easy to miss as you get close to it. Especially if you're heading straight at it, so you just notice that you're accelerating rather than actually being deviated from your path. Now, one of the side effects to having a rotating black hole is it tends to pull things along with it. So when you've got space dust, anything that's ionized, it gets dragged along and starts rotating in the same direction as the black hole. It forms what we call an accretion disk, which is uh, basically a collection. It's a, a disk almost like Saturn's or Jupiter's rings, but it extends right down to the event horizon, and it glows very, very brightly, because as these particles speed up and as they're spun around in circles and in this ever-decreasing spiral, they will get hot, and then they radiate as what we call blackbody radiation. So you notice you turn your stove on, it turns red. You've got fire in a fire pit, or wood in a fire pit, and it starts to glow white. That's what we call black body radiation. As everything heats up, it starts emitting electromagnetic radiation at specific frequencies. If it gets to a certain point, it starts radiating just heat. So humans' natural body temperature radiates infrared radiation as a black body. You get it hotter, and it starts to glow red, like the elements on the stove. You get it hotter than that, you're getting all the visible spectrum. So it starts to look white, like wood in a fire. The same thing happens to the particles falling into a black hole in the same sequence. So if you take something that's white hot and keep heating it, it'll actually become blue hot because that spectrum of what's being radiated gets pushed so high and so far to the high end of the spectrum, it stops radiating red and infrared. It starts doing blue and violet and ultraviolet. So what we should be seeing when we look at the black hole is that the particles on the extremes are glowing red and the particles in the center are glowing blue and violet. And they got that completely and entirely backwards in this movie. <laughs> it's blue from a distance and red at the core. Yeah. Oh. Ah. Well, again, they may have, met, may have thought, oh, we messed it up. We'll do it the second take. And then the take explodes or falls apart. And like, yeah, maybe we'll just have to live with that. Yeah, I think it was more artistic for the metaphor that they were getting to. Because one of the things that really plays through um, for a science fiction movie, this actually talks a lot about religion. Oh, yeah. Um, like when we first see the black hole, everyone basically starts dropping metaphors, comparing it to hell. Particularly the um, character played by um, Ernest Borgnine, uh, Harry Booth. Mm -hmm. Like, I think his first line of the movie is, that looks like something out of Dante's Inferno. Yep, and then Charlie Pizer says, every time I see one of those things, I keep expecting a guy with a pitchfork and horns. Right, so they are playing it up as a gateway to hell. 
And even when they finally meet Dr. Reinhardt, he says that his mission is a higher calling. So he ignored the recall orders because he had a higher calling. He's searching for the ultimate truth, which to a lot of people means the truth about existence or non-existence and nature of God. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I always found that somewhat iffy. Like, when I was rewatching it, I'm like, oh, um, that's... Yeah, you're sending off the crazy waves really early. <laughs> yeah, you are, but given that his character is supposed to be crazy, I'm okay with that. I will accept that. I, I agree. It's, it's, I wouldn't have complained if they were a little more subtle about it. Like, we didn't quite see how potentially loony he was until after we started getting some hints about the true fate of the crew of the Cygnus. Yeah, watching it as an adult, I would agree with that. But if we also keep in mind, this is Disney's first PG movie. This is the first time that they're really aiming for teenagers rather than the under 10 set. It's, by Disney standards, it is subtle. And there's a lot of things in here that are subtle. One of the things that we talked about, we you know talked about the crew going off on little unsupervised excursions. One of them is when the captain of the Palomino finds the old crew quarters. And this is after they've been told that the crew just left of their own volition. And he starts going through it and he finds mementos and keepsakes and photos and complete wardrobes on the ship. And at no time is there ever any dialogue that tells you what that means. They trust the viewer to go, oh, the crew wasn't planning to leave. This was not a case where they packed up and left. Right, they're gone, or they've been transformed, as we learn, into the humanoid robots. But we know Reinhardt's story does not make sense. These guys did not choose to leave with planning and the ability to pack up. Yeah, this, that, that's, that's definitely true. I'd say that the, the mystery of the fate of the Cygnus crew and that they've been transformed is definitely very subtle and very well done because it's the director and the writers trust the audience to pick up the pick up the cues rather than just ever go oh huh this is weird and then thinking out loud to themselves or something like that I mean they they discuss and put the pieces together later but they do a good job of, pick, of having the audience pick up everything as it happens as opposed to just beating us over the head with it yeah yeah and that is one of the things that I I did appreciate about it is that there are moments of subtlety like that like even the the funeral. So basically Gary Nelson's direction is pretty light on dialogue. And some of that may be because of the way the production was done, because these are very large and very elaborate sets. And one of the problems with having a whole lot of space in your set is that you get echoes, which make it difficult to record. One of the other problems with having a lot of space in your sets is that you need a way to get the microphone close enough to the actors to record them when they're speaking. It's a big issue and it causes a lot of filtering. The way they dealt with it in here is by not recording any of the dialogue live. The entire movie, the soundtrack was recorded in ADR or in post-production. So yeah, the actors were out there delivering their lines, but then after the movie was done, they sat down in the studio and recorded the lines, syncing themselves with what they saw on screen. And it's really hard to pick that out. They did a very impressive job because typically when that happens, I mean, often when that happens as an insert, it's done to help overcome difficulty in recording. For example, there's a scene in Ghostbusters that's outside a fountain, and the sound guys kept asking the director, can we turn off the fountain? And Wright was saying, no, the fountain's the reason we're filming here. <laughs> so they had to go back and re-record all dialogue in the studio after the fact, which is difficult for the actors to do because they have to repeat the lines to keep it completely in sync with the lips that they have on screen because they didn't have the auto-tune and the auto-syncing that we have now, thanks to the music video industry, to keep that all lined up. Yeah, a good example of 
uh, of films done full ADR where the syncing doesn't quite work right is actually in like the Sergio Leone spaghetti westerns because the mm-hmm. Italian film industry those movies are also generally done pretty much all ADR yeah almost and exclusively so that so that's something to sort of keep in mind yeah it does make it tricky if you have actors that aren't up to the challenge you end up looking like the movie was badly dubbed even though it's in the original language with the original actors and the original voices. It also means it would have been a little bit difficult to do on set. They might have managed to, to kick it off with Bob and Vincent, because one of the difficulties with this is timing. So it might have actually made it easier to time the lines for Bob and Vincent and these other robots that speak without moving lips, because I mean, the actors don't have the moving lips to use as the cue. So that way they can have someone just off camera reading that character's lines, possibly Roddy McDowell and Slim Plickens themselves, reading the lines of dialogue so the actors can keep the conversations between them timed out. Because there are a number of conversations that go back and forth between Vincent and Bob, and it does work very well. That's a pretty significant technical challenge, and if I hadn't read that the whole movie was done in the ADR, I never would have picked up on it. And it's frequently very obvious when that's the case. Mm-hmm. Might as well talk to me about the robot designs here. The robot designs here are really good. Particularly, I mean, Bob and Vincent are probably the most Disney-ish of the robot designs in terms of very expressive eyes, uh, very big eyes, kind of, I don't want to call them cutesy, but definitely more friendly looking. Uh, but then on the other hand, we have the security robots, including Star and Maximilian, which is probably the scariest robot I have ever seen in cinema. Or at least I thought so when I saw this when I was like five or six. Yeah, he was, Maximilian is very imposing. I also like the fact that the flying robots are designed to be flying robots. Yeah, sometimes the wires are visible. Sometimes it's clear that they've got them on some sort of rod that's hidden from the camera. And they did a good job of hiding things from the cameras. As a visual director, Gary Nelson is actually very impressive. And that's part of what gives Maximilian that strange air. Because you look at Maximilian, there is no question that this robot is always levitating. He is not designed to stand on the ground. This is not C-3PO. This is not a guy in a suit. This is 100% special effect. It basically comes down to very good puppeteering for a lot of these robots. And that's something that Disney has had practice with at this point. Yeah. The cast of the whole this movie is also really good. Yeah, Maximilian Schell as Dr. Hans, Hans Reinhardt, who by this point was a very well-established actor. We also mentioned Ernest Borgnine, who again, I think he was still mostly known as a character actor at this point, but an established character actor. Mm-hmm. And then we have Anthony Perkins, who most viewers will probably recognize as Norman Bates, the original Psycho. Well, playing not a deranged murderer as yeah. Dr. Alex Durant. And the other, other real major roles you could see here, Robert Forster, who audiences who haven't seen the movie might remember from the Quentin Tarantino movie Jackie Brown playing Dan Holland, who's basically the, the main male lead here, one of the two main male leads, the other one being Joseph Bottoms as Charlie Pfizer, who I don't think was in that much stuff afterwards. Yeah, his career afterwards was unfortunately not quite as big. Looking over his IMDb list, and after the black hole, we have like an episode of Murder, She Wrote, a whole bunch of episodes of The Net, the uh, TV series based off the, the really terrible hacker movie. Yeah, and the TV series was actually good. Oh, okay, did not know that. Yep, starred Brooke Langton. I was actually fairly impressed with it. Ah. And at no time did they stick a PC disc into a Mac computer and give it a virus. <laughs> Other than that, we have Yvette. I'm going to mangle this last name. You can probably pronounce it better since it's the last name is French. Okay. 
I'll give it a shot. I'm a Western Canadian. We don't have a lot of opportunity to practice French. Um, yeah, Yvette Mimieux. Okay. And then Tom McLaughlin is largely a voice actor for Disney. He was Captain Star. So basically that robot, I suspect he got that part because he was skinny enough to fit in the suit. Yeah. Tommy Laughlin, I looked over his IMDb page. He is probably the, the best known thing I see on his list of cast work. Is actually not one of his... I mean, he's actually directed a lot of stuff. But the thing that like, stuck out in my head as far as his big credit actually came like six years after this. He wrote and directed Friday the 13th Part 6. Okay. Which is... It's a long ways into the series. Well, yeah, it's a long ways into the series. It's also one where it's it's Jason lives. It's the one where they actually it's it's, it's Jason this time. Really, we mean it. It's not a guy pretending to be Jason. Okay, I'll I'll take your word for that. I honestly haven't seen any of the Friday the Thirteenth movies. Not a big horror or slasher fan. Yeah, but bet looking over her cast list after the black hole, not much after this. Like one season of Behringer's. And she had a, but she was on the love boat. She was on the love boat for two years, yeah. or 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 other. She was on three episodes of of the love boat over two years. Uh, a two parter, and then a she reprised the role in a, another episode three uh, two years after that. But then again, I think everybody was on the on the love boat at some point. For the most part, yeah, that's one of the things with anthology shows, which is a large part of the love boat format is that you need a lot of cast members. Yeah. And that was one of the the hardest parts in production for shows like The Twilight Zone and The Outer Limits, is basically recasting the show every single week. Not just for the little parts, but for the leads every week. Mm-hmm. And that's part of what was happening with Love Boat and, to a lesser degree, Murder, She Wrote, and your other murder mysteries like that. Yeah. Now, there are three uncredited actors that are worth mentioning. We've already talked about Roddy McDowell as Vincent the Vital Information Network centralized robot that comes with them on the Palomino. Slim Pickens is Bob, who was... I forget exactly what that acronym was, but... Biosanitation Battalion. So I never did quite figure out where the O came from instead of the S. But, yeah, he was another part of that, that same style of robot as Vincent, and that's part of the reason they bonded and Bob ended up helping the crew of the Palomino. Neither of them are credited on screen at any time, either in the opening or closing credits. And then we talked about the humanoids... The Rebellion crew was somehow transformed into humanoids. And I'd kind of like to know how Dr. Reinhardt pulled that off. Because there's a whole lot of them and just one of him. And you think after they start converting the first couple, the rest are going to be fighting back pretty hard. Now, Maximilian is imposing, but he must have had most of the other robots we see already in place to force that conversion to happen. Yeah, the, the security robots are probably the only thing they could see successfully putting down that sort of rebellion. Mm-hmm. Which also leads to kind of the question of why do they have that many heavily armed security robots? I mean, they do set up early on in the movie that other country that we don't have a United Earth situation or anything like that, where all of Earth's space flight is together is together over one country, different countries with their own space vessels. But yeah. I, I don't see like the Soviet Union engaging in an act of space piracy by attacking a science vessel. Yeah, there is an entire story that needs to be told there to explain how this status quo came about. But at one point, when this information is finally getting to the crew, Anthony Perkins' character, Dr. Durant, who up to this point has been perfectly willing to stay with Dr. Reinhardt because he recognizes, yeah, this guy's got an ego, but maybe it's justified. This is world-changing science, right? He's willing to stick around and check it out until he finds out that Reinhardt has transformed the human crew into these humanoid robots. He unmasks one of them. And that humanoid robot who is unmasked, that's a cameo by director Gary Nelson. So, that was Gary Nelson under that mask. Ah. 
So if you're not a fan of this movie and looking for someone to blame, that's him. That's the guy. <laughs> and when you're working for Disney, you might have as much free will as his character did when you're directing those movies. That's true. Be directed this, yeah, it could be this case of Gary Nelson directed this movie about as much as Toby Cooper directed uh, Gremlins. Yeah, that's, I mean, it, it, that's not necessarily a bad system. Yeah. When you've got something like your Simpson Bruckheimer films were famous for this, or nowadays the Marvel films and why Edgar Wright is no longer associated with Ant-Man, when you have a production studio that's known for a specific brand and they want people to know exactly what kind of movie they're going to see as soon as they see that company's name on screen, then they tend to take a lot of control over what's happening in the film. So a lot of times the director in a Disney movie or a Marvel movie or the Simpson Bruckheimers in the Simpson Bruckheimer days, what they're really doing is, I mean, yeah, they are directing the movie. Sometimes it's a case of, you know, Simpson and Bruckheimer telling guys do exactly this. I mean, look at Michael Bay's career with Simpson Bruckheimer and these days. You would be hard pressed to convince me he had complete creative freedom to produce both The Rock, Con Air, Armageddon, and that string, and the Transformers franchise. Yeah. The level of intelligence and respect for the audience you see in The Rock versus either of the Transformers movies I've seen, I will put that out there, maybe three and four are significant improvements over the first two. After seeing the first two, I'm not particularly willing to give three and four a chance. That could be on me, I could be mistaken, but I did not enjoy the first two. Yeah, that it's hard to believe it's the same guy. This could be a case like that. It could also be a case like, you know, Joe Johnston directing The Rocketeer for Disney. That was his directorial debut. Disney tends to have a lot of input. But you look at a lot of his later films when he had more creative control. That was a case where I think Disney allowed themselves to go pretty hands-off because they knew exactly what kind of movie they wanted to make. And that was the same kind of movie Joe Johnston wanted to make. So they said, okay, you're going to make it the way we want you to make it anyway. We don't need to ride you. We can just trust you to produce what we want you to produce because you're on the same page going for the same thing. I don't know which that was in this case. And that's one of the unfortunate things. Black Hole, it was eventually profitable, but it took some time. It had a $20 million budget. And those of you who listen to my Silver Screen Superman or Big Screen Batman podcast know, typically speaking, your domestic take has to be two to three times the budget before it actually goes into profitability. Because that domestic box office gets shared by exhibitors and distributors and other people in the food chain. So when you go and spend $14 in the theater, neither the theater you're at nor the movie studio gets all of that $14. Right? It's divided along the way. So the exhibitor takes a piece, and that's part of the reason that 3D and Ultra AVX and that, you know, paying that extra two or three bucks for a 3D and assigned seating is becoming so popular. The exhibitors are getting on board with it because the studios allowed them to take a bigger cut. So the studios take a lower percentage to take about the same amount of dollars home whether you see it in 3D or not. So the exhibitor gets more money, which they needed because they were getting a tiny piece of that pie. When I was working at a movie theater in the mid-90s, opening two weeks of a film we were lucky to see 15% of the box office. And that number has been steadily shrinking since then. Part of the reason True Lies didn't do as well in theaters as they wanted is because Fox was asking for 95% of the box office ticket, which was record-breaking at the time. So people could say, you got my 10 bucks, and the studios were saying, no, we got 50 cents of that. Right. And a lot of exhibitors were trying to buck that trend and just refused to show it. That's part of the reason True Lies didn't perform as well as it wanted to. It wasn't on as many screens because Fox, Fox asked for so much money. So this one, the, the final domestic take was $35 million on a $20 million budget. So it's getting to the point where it'll make money in theaters. But they actually had to release it in theaters three times. 
So it was released in 79, in 82, and then again in 85. Because this was in the early days of home video. And it wasn't as nearly as ubiquitous, and the movies were not nearly as cheap as they are these days. So re-releasing in theaters was viable, and something that Disney was doing on a fairly regular basis. Because when you're aiming for kids, if you've got a movie aimed for the 8 to 10 year old bracket, you wait 3 or 4 years, you've got a whole new set of 8 to 10 year olds you can sell that movie to. Yeah, that matters the same thing with teenagers. Mm-hmm. Which this, which as a PG-rated movie in the days before PG-13, is what this movie was aimed for. Yeah, so when you release it every three or four years, you've got a new batch of teenagers to look at. And now a lot of those re-releases have been sort of replaced with the home video sales. Right, mm-hmm. Every few years you can release it on DVD. And that's part of the reason Disney has been so successful, because they've been able to re-release old content. I mean, I've seen movies that Disney first released in the 40s and 50s on the big screen as a child, because that was Disney's plan. That's the same reason they talk about going back to the vault. They're still using that methodology for their home video releases. So their first DVD was Little Mermaid, which I believe came out in 1999. Went back to the vault. They sat on it. At the time, the vault was 10 years. That one was only five because DVD hadn't made it as widely spread through homes as they'd hoped, and it didn't perform all that well. So they that one, they shortened it to a few years for that window and sort of circumvented the issues with that by releasing it on Blu-ray next. Uh, Little Mermaid um, original theatrical release was 89. Was 89. Yeah, and the first time it came out on DVD was 99, and oh, that was I'm, Disney's first DVD release. Okay, yeah. I misunderstood. Ah, okay. Yeah, Durr. and then you know, the DVD sales didn't perform as well as they'd hoped. It had sold like gangbusters on VHS for years before that, but that was the first time they released one of their major animated films on DVD. Okay. So, yeah, it did eventually push to the point where it would have been close to profitable in the theaters, but they had to release it three times before they hit that point. So it was not a proven quantity. And yeah, it did come out on beta, VHS, on DVD. I haven't seen it coming out on Blu-ray. But the downside to that sort of lack of success is they're not willing to invest a whole lot. So the bonus features on the DVD, we get the original trailer, and we get the original 16 or 17 minute making of documentary that was produced at the time. And that's it. They're not creating any new content to put on it. So we've got no director's commentaries or anything like that to really get a you know much more in-depth view of how this film was being put together. Yeah, actually, I think that that feature might not have been made for the, at the time of the uh, theatrical release, but it might have been made like for the laserdisc release or something. I don't know if we got a laserdisc release. Probably did. <laughs> at the time, probably, yeah. Oh, another thing I wanted to mention about this that stuck out of my head for Black Hole is the design itself of the Cygnus. And the size and scale of the ship, it's a very unique design. There aren't that many ships in science fiction films that are that look like it. Um, most big ships in science fiction movies are basically you kitbash a whole bunch of battleship models together or aircraft carrier models or other ship models together to get the surface of your big ships, like what you get with the Star Destroyers in the Star Wars movies, or the Discovery on 2001 Space Odyssey, or, for that matter, the the Mega Maid from Spaceballs. Mm -hmm. But the design of the Cygnus is sort of like an industrial gothic cathedral kind of look to it. It's lots of struts, lots of places for light to come in and out. When the ship sort of comes alive, when the Palomino comes into dock, it, it lights up a lot. Mm-hmm. Additionally, the way characters move through the ship through these uh, sort of tramway scooter things feels a, a bit like a, a concept that was... It feels like, There's a video game that came out later, like much later, fairly recently, called Dead Space. And it feels like the for the ship in Dead Space, the Ishimura kind of borrows a bit of that for how you move through the inside of that ship. It's also a similar gigantic vessel in space 
but it, it, the horror there is a little more different, uh, significantly more different. It is. Yeah, and I, I do like the design here because it, it lends itself to a long-term mission. You believe this could have all the facilities of an actual city in space that the crew would need to not go insane, being in this ship for years. Yeah. Unfortunately, that means it's not a good design for a ship that's going to be parked near a black hole. And this leads us to the film's ending where, long story short, Dr. Reinhardt decides to take the Cygnus through the black hole after doing some experimental test runs with his significantly smaller probe ship. The crew of the Palomino attempts to escape first to their ship, but when that is destroyed, they then have to make it out, try to make down the probe ship. The Cygnus breaks up and is destroyed in the process, and the uh, probe ship goes in, through, and beyond, use a recurring line in the film. In the sequence that reminds me a bit of, like they were, like they were trying to emulate the uh, Jupiter and Beyond the Infinite sequence from 2001 A Space Odyssey, but with a bit more direct imagery, as opposed to the more abstract imagery of that sequence? To some degree, yes. But this is the sequence. In early June, TMZ caught up with Neil deGrasse Tyson, famous astrophysicist, does Star Talk Radio, which is released as a podcast, and I highly, highly recommend. Great podcast. They caught up with him outside a hotel and asked him what he thought the least scientifically accurate film of all time was. And he named The Black Hole. And he named two major reasons for why he felt it was the most scientifically inaccurate film of all time. Now, I'm going to criticize the science. I already have. I'm going to do more again. But the two things that he complained about, I don't have any problems with because of the way the story was told. So as this craft, the Cygnus, is going into the black hole and the Palomino and the probe as well, we do see that there's stresses on it. We see that it's shaking. The problems I have with it, number one, it's going straight in. You said that they came up with the black hole effect by creating a whirlpool in a tank. And that's still the way it's being treated. If you look at it logistically and how this is falling, it's like a helicopter hovering over a whirlpool in the ocean and it's slowly descending into it. That's not the way black holes work. When they spin, they actually drag the space with them. And a black hole this size spinning that quickly would produce what are known as ergo regions. So there is a region of space around this black hole where you not only are incapable of flying straight towards it, you're incapable of moving opposite to the direction of rotation of the black hole. So if the black hole is moving clockwise, you cannot move counterclockwise because the space you're riding in is going the other way too fast. So the Cygnus should not have been going straight in. It should have been spiraling in. And as I already said, the colors were getting more and more red. They should be getting less red and more blue. One of the other issues is as they're falling in, the crew of the ship are turned around and looking at each other. They're looking ahead at what's going. You can't see ahead of you. When you're in these regions, everything, including light, must be traveling in a clockwise direction. Which means all the light in front of you isn't coming back to be caught by your retinas. It's going further ahead of you. It's still traveling at the speed of light, but it's going the other way. Looking ahead of you, you see nothing but blackness. Looking behind you, I said the color should get more blue. You're not going to see them as blue. Because as that light is falling towards you, it gains energy. Just like if you drop an apple, it gains speed as it approaches the ground because it's gaining kinetic energy. Light always moves at the same speed, so it's not going to be gaining kinetic energy, it's going to be gaining light energy. The frequency is going to be increasing. It's going to Doppler shift right out of the visible spectrum. So when you look behind you, you don't see the person behind you. Any light that's being emitted from the surface of their skin is coming at you as gamma rays, and it's frying you. These are issues we have. Now, the other issues that Neil deGrasse Tyson put forward... One of the main ones is the lack of spaghettification. So spaghettification, believe it or not, is a technical term. 
Because as any normal matter falls into a black hole, it gets stretched out like spaghetti. So if you take someone who's six feet tall and you throw them in a black hole, they're not going to be six feet tall and as wide as they used to be. They're going to be this long, long piece of spaghetti that might, it'll break up and snap because the human body can't take it. But if you were to take something like, you know, well, not even Silly Putty could survive anything that's malleable. If you could find a material that mankind hasn't discovered yet, that could withstand these stresses and drop it in, it's just going to keep wrapping around and around and around that black hole like a string of toffee and be spun very, very, very thin. I'm okay with this not happening because of the science that's already been established. Namely, Dr. Hans Reinhardt has developed a form of anti-gravity, so he can overcome the gravitational forces. That's why he didn't fall into the black hole. That's why they had the pocket of normal space. They skirt around how the science works by having Reinhardt say to Anthony Perkins' character, Dr. Durant, well, let me show you my work. Then they cut away to other characters, come back, and Durant was going, your calculations are amazing, and he agrees to take them back to mankind. So they completely cut away from the conversation that says this is what's actually going on, but they say they have a solution. And as they're falling in, even the probe that the guys are on, the Palomino crew are on, one of the first things Dr. Pizer says, or Lieutenant Pizer says is, okay, gravity force field is engaged. So the same anti-gravity bubble that's already protected the probe is protecting them. So I can deal with the lack of spaghettification because they've got this technology way beyond what we have now that they didn't even try to explain that protects them from those tidal gravitational effects. So that part I can kind of buy. The other major issue that Dr. Tyson has with it is the imagery. So he says they go into the black hole and you see the rocks and the crags and it's like this cavern inside and there's fire and there's flames. And I get why that would bother you if you're looking at that and taking it as a literal interpretation. I don't believe it's literal. I believe Dr. Reinhardt was just plain wrong and everybody died. Because if you look at what happens in this imagery, right, Dr. Reinhardt, the last time we see him, he's getting crushed on the bridge of the Cygnus and nobody's helping him. Then he's out in space and gets trapped inside the shell of Maximilian. So the same living hell he put his crew through is the hell he gets trapped in in a region that looks like hell. Superimposed on that, we get this pearly tunnel and we go through the tunnel and there's the crew of the Palomino looking around, no dialogue, no nothing. I believe everybody died. Reinhardt went to hell and his personal hell was being trapped inside Maximilian, while the crew of the Palomino went to heaven through that tunnel that ends with the pearly gates, the literal pearly gates at the end of a pearly tunnel. So I'm okay with that imagery because I don't think that's what's in the black hole. If anything, it went through to the other side, meaning the afterlife, and they got sorted into heaven and hell. So I don't think we can take any of that literally. I think this is just a major downer ending. Every single character we meet in this movie is dead when it's all over. We just know the good guys, they went to heaven. Well, let it not be said that Disney always pulls its punches. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, let's say, even if it was successful, I don't know if they could have gotten the same creative team back to make a sequel. Yeah. I mean, their, their vague bit of sequel hint at the end is the fact that we do see the um, probe ship flying out towards some distant star system, but then leads the question of, they're in this very small probe ship heading towards a distant star system. Yeah, but even then, like I said, I don't know if that's literal or if that's figurative. These are guys yeah. who were, their passion was exploration, and that's what they wanted to do, was to get out there and learn about the universe. Maybe that's their heaven, right? Maybe. They go through the pearly gates, and then, okay, here, go explore for as long as you want. Yeah. Interestingly, is looking over the Wikipedia page, so this film was adapted to a novel by Alan Dean Foster, as many science fiction films are, and in the novelization, the way that Foster has the ending work is Kate has ESP, because 
still during the 60s and 70s, science fiction was kind of dabbling with psychic abilities and that sort of stuff being actual possibly viable science fiction stuff, um, yeah. possibly viable science. Which I can take in this movie because it worked very well in terms of communication between her and Vincent. The, the story depended on it. Yeah. So in the um, novelization, Kate's ESP basically links the minds of the Palomino's crew members together and sort of allows their consciousness to survive while their bodies are scattered, while the atoms of their bodies are basically scattered to all the ends of the universe. So a sort of, I, mean, I don't know how to describe this ending, because most of the other works that do anything close to this is like the end of Akira with... It's sort of an ascending, ascending to a higher plane of existence kind of thing, like with um, Tetsuo at the end of Akira, which we'll get to later in a later episode, or oh, what was the episode of Babylon 5 with the uh, psychic who was experimented on, who comes to Babylon 5, Yeah, and other similar works like that, that sort of thing. Definitely a novel ending. I, I'm, I'm not sure how you'd shoot that. Yeah, and that's part of the issue here. If you were to actually shoot the descent of the black hole as these people see it, you you don't see anything. It goes black. Right? There, there are some things in science fiction which are better on the page than on screen because if you represent it on screen in any way, you're doing it wrong. Yeah, it's definitely an example of some things which are just completely unfilmable, at least not with live action. You could probably approximate it in a visually interesting fashion with animation, but then we'd have, a, in its own way, a very different film. Well, a black screen is a black screen. It doesn't matter if that's because you're filming with the lights off or because you drew it all black. Uh, I, I do agree in terms of, like, if they have them, if you have, for example, um, they, they set up early on that uh, Reinhardt is, considers the possibility that the black hole could be a wormhole. He refers to it as a Einstein-Rosen bridge, which is the scientific, I believe the scientific term. Uh, the scientific term, not for a black hole, but for a wormhole. And we say a wormhole. He says, yeah. they believe, he thinks the black hole might be a wormhole. So if you do have the, it'd be a wormhole, you could have, um, do some interesting stuff with how you might emerge from a wormhole. Sadly, no. Because uh, Einstein and Rosen, they did the math on the Einstein-Rosen bridge, and they proved that you could connect it. And one of the issues with that is you could connect it not just to another location in space, but to another location in space-time. The math that provides warp drive in Star Trek also provides time travel. And that has a problem where cause or effect could precede cause, right? As soon as you have time travel, effects may be able to precede cause. And right now we're taking causality or cause precedes effect as an axiom. So we're assuming that's true because every observation we've ever had says that's going to work, but we have no other reason. That's something we have to artificially build into the theories. We may take it out with sufficient justification down the road. But they're wondering, okay, so how do you diffuse this? How, if cause can, or effect can precede cause, how do you avoid accidentally killing your grandfather before you're born or something like that? And what they do, they've crunched the math on what happens to you as you go through a wormhole. What happens to you is exactly the same as what happens if you go through a black hole, because as soon as any energy of any kind, a single photon of light, a single proton, a single electron, any particle containing energy and momentum goes into that wormhole, the wormhole collapses and splits into two black holes long uh, before you come out the other side. That's a bummer. Yeah. Now, Kip Thorne, who's an awesome guy, by the way, I did manage to meet him once. He and some of his collaborators did come up with a theoretical way to keep the wormhole open. If you have something that they call exotic matter of the particular properties and park it right in front of the black hole, that can sort of hold the door open. So they figured out, okay, a doorstop that fits these specifications could keep that door open. Which gave hope to the science fiction writers again to say, okay, how do you make this stuff? What does it look like? Well, the answer is 
it's a form of matter that doesn't look even remotely like anything we've ever seen or discovered or theorized, and we have no idea how to make it. <laughs> so as far as we can tell, it exists only on paper, and we can't even begin to approach saying, here's how we make matter of that type. I'm not saying it's impossible. Every time we've pushed particle accelerators into a new energy regime, we have seen new particles. So the latest one, the, the LHC, has found the Higgs, and it is pretty definitively the Higgs boson. It fits one of the standard models, actually fits one of the simplest versions of the standard model. Every single time we've moved to a higher energy, we've seen new stuff. So that, you know, right now they're exploring other physics that's maybe not as flashy or significant as the Higgs, but the LHC still has a lot of physics it can do. At the end of its life, we've got a decision to make. Do we try to build a higher energy accelerator just to see what's out there and see if we can't create some of this exotic matter that we've had no sign of so far? One of the big obstacles to that is the limits on particle accelerators themselves. Anytime you accelerate a charged particle, even just making it turn a corner, like they do keeping these things in a 27-kilometer ring, you get what they call bremsstrahlung or braking radiation. You have to electromagnetically interact with that particle to make it turn, which means there is a chance it's going to spit out a photon and slow down as it goes through that corner. And the tighter the circle or the higher energy you put in the same circle, the more likely that is. So we are rapidly approaching the point where looking for new physics doesn't mean building a new accelerator in that same 27-kilometer hole. It means buying land that is much, much bigger. If we're looking at the surface of the Earth, people have actually checked. With today's technology to push into new energies, there is no plot of land anywhere on the planet owned by a single owner that is large enough to build the next accelerator ring. So there's some fairly serious talk about maybe pitching the next accelerator in orbit around the Earth. Be much more expensive to build and to access, but a whole lot easier to deal with it environmentally in terms of cooling, in terms of keeping other particles out, all of that stuff. So we'd be able to get a much, much higher energy accelerator if it's orbiting the Earth rather than on the Earth. And that is the best shot we have at discovering exotic matter that doesn't fit any of the parameters that we have. We have to go to energy regimes that nobody can predict, just like we did when we found the pion and the muon. And a lot of these other particles that have been around since the 1930s that admittedly the average Joe on the street has never heard of, but which people in particle physics now take for granted. Yeah, so before we wrap this up, talk about some of the nominations, because this movie actually got a fair number of them. Academy Awards nominated for cinematography and visual effects. And the main problem this movie has with its nominations that it got, it had the bad fortune of being out at the time of some other much bigger movies that are generally considered to be some of the classics of cinema as a whole. Like, for example, Best Visual Effects it was beaten by Alien, and H.R. Giger's Creature Design, and Landscape Designs, and everything else like that. And it, it should have been. Because it, visually, yep. this is a great movie. If you don't know the science well enough to know what this stuff is supposed to look like, you will probably be very happy with the way it looks. Yep. It, it looks... It, it deserved the nomination, but Alien was also absolutely stunning. For cinematography, yep. it was beaten by Apocalypse Now. Again, considered to be one of the greatest films of all time. On uh, the Saturn Awards, he was nominated for Best Picture, and we lost to Alien. Yeah, as you're nominated for Best Writing as well, lost to Time After Time, written by Nicholas Meyer. Best Visual Effects, lost to Star Trek The Motion Picture on that one. Best Music, lost to Time After Time. I kind of, I haven't seen Time After Time, so I can't compare that one. And yeah, Best Science Fiction Film, lost to Alien. And the Hugo Awards, Again, it was lost time after time, lost to Alien, but again, there was also up against, in addition to Alien, Time After Time, Star Trek The Motion Picture, and The Muppet Movie. 
Mm-hmm. And I mean, two of those, uh, three of those are movies which have had major box set releases, and I mean, most people have the Muppet movie in their collection, whether they have kids or not. Star Trek the Motion Picture, pretty much, even if even the Trekkies who don't like that movie still own a copy of that movie. Yes, also known as Star Trek, where Nomad has gone before. I prefer Star Trek the Motionless Picture. <laughs> yeah, I just found I I enjoyed that story more when it was forty eight minutes with the Nomad satellite. Yeah, yeah. from the original series. Uh, that that's a discussion for another episode, but that I think covers all of the bases. Yeah, it did come out. Or we are, of course, discussing because it was part of the greatest science fiction film tournament that we held that wrapped up in 2013. And we do intend to get more of these episodes out to you this summer. Now, we didn't really talk a lot about the standings because it was eliminated in round one. So when we were sorting things to pick the top 120 plus the eight wild cards to actually go through the bracket starting in round two, this didn't make the top 120. It actually came out in slot 253 out of, I believe, 384. Yeah. Yeah. So it's. It landed one notch higher than Escape from the Planet of the Apes and one notch lower than Revenge of the Sith. So right in there with Revenge of the Sith, The Scanner Darkly, and Superman 2. I can't argue with that too much. I mean, I enjoyed the movie, but there are some other films in there which made the tournament which are much, much better. Yeah, going through the list of movies that scored higher, I would agree that the overwhelming majority deserve to be higher. There are some exceptions, like Prometheus, I will take this over Prometheus any day of the week. Some of the ones that are lower, I'm still surprised at how poorly X-Files Fight the Future did there. Now, if it was the second X-Files movie, no question. But the first one, I thought should have done better. Yeah. Life Force is one we've already done a podcast about. That one came out at 266, so 13 inches below this. So yeah, we're in the point where it's in a long string of movies that have their strengths and they have their flaws. So this is one, as I said, it is very visual. It's surprisingly visual for a basically a kid's movie, right? This is aimed primarily at early teens coming out of Disney. And even then, Disney wasn't really used to marketing to them. So I don't know how much of this box office performance was because they didn't know how to let the the target audience know it was there because their existing advertising channels weren't aimed at that group. So it is, in in a lot of ways, it's respectable. As far as the science goes... There are some major flaws. I will disagree with Dr. Tyson when he says this is the most scientifically inaccurate movie of all time. I suspect it's just, it's the movie that did one of the worst jobs with something that he is most passionate about. But as flawed as the black hole physics are here, they did a much better job than the second episode of Voyager. (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) No putting, no no trying to make a crack in the (laughs) mid horizon of a black hole. Yeah, and the Event Horizon <laughs> is not a purple crystal that you can fly through on le- slower than light speed engines. I mean, <laughs> uh, yeah, this this gives you the impression of lay people writing about black holes to the best of their ability to understand, drawing their information from material that did not effectively explain them. So they just honestly thought it worked th- this way, and they were really trying to make a serious science fiction film as was common in the late 60s and early 70s. It was something harkening back to that style and bringing that style of science fiction to what they hoped would be a new generation. Sadly, the idea of having a science advisor on set to make sure the science is right wasn't nearly as common when this was made. And even though it's relatively common now, by the sounds of it, a lot of times it's more for appearances. For example, Phil Plate, bad astronomer, was science advisor on The Watchmen. There were a number of times where he said, this science is broken, 
And the response he got was, yeah, but we've taken it straight from the comic and we're going to keep doing it straight from the comic. The scientific inaccuracies you see in Watchmen are largely there because they are accurately representing the source material that made the same mistakes. And you can make a very strong case for that as a filmmaker. Right? Most filmmakers, as far as they are concerned, the best possible story comes first and the science comes second. Yeah. And we'll get some interesting discussion of that later, particularly some of the other movies here, like we get to discussing 2001, The Space Odyssey, where I think for that matter, the best example of this is our two finalists in the tournament, 2001, A Space Odyssey, and Star Wars, where 2001 is, I'm not going to say the hardest science fiction film of all time in terms of science, but it's up there on one side of things, and you have Star Wars, which is Buck Rogers and plays fast and, and loose as the story requires it to do. Yeah, you can make a very, very strong case for saying that Star Wars is not science fiction, it's space opera. Yeah. Because at no point were they actually extrapolating science to come up with it. So, as Alex says, we'll get to a lot of these in the future, and we're going to try to get more out to you this summer and hopefully record them faster than when we release them, so you'll have more of these podcasts coming out through the fall as well. In the meantime, if you are looking for something that does a pretty good job with black hole science, I recommend Stargate SG-1 Season 2 Episode 15, A Matter of Time. The black hole effects in this come into two categories. There's the kind that they get exactly right, and then there's the kind that are addressed in one quick scene when the astrophysicists on the team are just totally baffled, saying, we don't know why we're not seeing those effects, the Stargate must somehow be protecting us from them. So there are cases where they get the science wrong, but they blatantly say, this science is wrong, it's something to deal with the Stargate technology we don't understand, that's based on the same sort of principles, we don't know. And that I will accept, because they fully acknowledge this is what should be done. So it's like they went to the science advisor, said, what do we get wrong? Okay, and then put that dialogue in the scene. So that at the very least, they're acknowledging yeah, we got these parts wrong, but they do it in a way that is plausible as far as this goes. So yeah, Stargate SG-1 Season 2 Episode 15, A Matter of Time, is probably my favorite representation of a black hole on any size screen. Alrighty. Alright, so join us again in probably a couple of weeks as we discuss another movie from the tournament, and uh, we'd like to announce what it is, but we don't know yet. <laughs> uh, as, as with all good things, you'll know when it's done. <laughs>